place there. Uh, let me just let everyone know officially that yesterday afternoon, uh, Fred Yonst, one of our senior adults, uh, one of the biggest cheerleaders of this pastor, uh, passed away. He was like half of our amen corner over here in the front to my right, and uh, what a dear brother he is or was, and uh, what a great encouragement to all of us he has been over the years. But yesterday he left this world and entered eternity, and so we want to pray for his wife, Miss Jean, and their two children, and, and all of them as they make arrangements early this week, and we'll lay him to rest at some point later this week. I can't believe it's already October, middle of October, and which means that Halloween will soon be here. In a couple of weeks, we'll be uh, full-blown Halloween. That means that uh, there will be all kinds of zombies and football players and uh, witches, Donald Trumps, and you name it, walking up and down our neighborhoods. There'll be people dressed as superheroes of all uh, classifications just out there, and, and they're all in search of the ever-elusive candy dish on Halloween night. I hope they have a bunch of them here on October 29th for our fall festival, and I uh, hope you're planning for that and uh, inviting people to come to that, but Halloween is quickly coming upon us. You know, this in- holiday has really interested me uh, over the years. I've always been intrigued by how people will go to such great lengths and extents to come up with these very... Uh, nifty, I guess is a good word, of, of costumes and, 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 and elaborate, how elaborate they will go. And so it's intrigued me of how, how they pick the costumes out, number one, and what they pick out, number two. I mean, what, what is it that leads a person to choose their particular character? What is it that, that causes someone to want to dress up as Thor or Wonder Woman or, uh, Lord help you, a, a witch or something like that? Why, is it, why do people pick these things out. And this year what we'll see is we'll see all the stuff that's in the media. And so uh, we'll see a lot of little girls dressed as Wonder Woman. We'll see Thor because there's a new movie coming out. Uh, Groot, people would be dressed as Groot if you've ever watched Guardians of the Galaxies. Many of you might not have, might not have ever seen those movies, but I think they're hilarious and, and just the fun movies to watch. There will also be a lot of Donald Trumps. Uh, I've already seen that in the media, that people are going to dress like our president. So they're going to have combed over hair, and, and I'm thinking about doing that myself. As I get more and more bald, I'm just going to do the comb over thing. Comb it backwards is what I'm going to do. I'm going to grow it in the front and bring it to the back. Um, or maybe I'll grow a, 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 what do you call that when you, uh, West Virginia, a mullet. I couldn't think. I call it a West Virginia waterfall, so I couldn't think of what the official term was. And I'll just grow that and bring it back up over the top of my head. But we're going to see a lot of Donald Trumps. And so what is it that causes or leads someone to pick out the characters that they're going to dress as on Halloween? Uh, I believe it's because in, in some way, in some fashion, they would like to have some aspect of who that character is. And so if they're a superhero, they would like to have the power, the, the superpower that they have. So maybe it's Superman. They want to fly or they want his laser eyes or Thor. I mean, who wouldn't want to have a flying hammer that no one else can pick up? And so you have the only magical powers that can do that. I would love to have that power. Several years ago, we were on staff at our former church. We used to dress as a theme at our fall festival. So all of our staff would pick a theme every year. One year, we were the Duck Dynasty. I was Chase or Jace from Duck Dynasty. I loved that year. It was the best costume I've ever had in all of my life. I loved it. And then the year before that, we were like this... 80s band, and it was horrible, and I had this terrible wig that made me sweat to death the whole night. It was just awful. And then the, the following year after Duck Dynasty, we were superheroes, and I was Thor. I thought it was great. I, mean, I was dressed up, had big muscles in my suit, and had a plastic camera that I walked around with, hitting kids on the head. It was a great night, wonderful night. But you know what? No matter how much you would love to mimic or to have, I should say, the power 
of your superhero. You're, you'll never be able to have it. You'll never be able to mimic those special powers. And so on Halloween night, Superman's going to be grounded. Thor's hammer is going to be nothing more than plastic, not even strong enough to hammer a nail into a board. Uh, Wonder Woman's shield won't stop a rock that's thrown at her, and Donald Trump's costume comes neither with the presidency nor with a billion-dollar portfolio. It only comes with a bad hairdo. And so uh, you'll be nothing more on Halloween than the shell of what you would desire and long to be or what you wish to be true. You know, in many ways, what we see on Halloween is all too true each Sunday in the typical evangelical church in America. You see, today in America, and especially true in the southern part of America, the church is full of cultural Christians. It's full of people who like the forms and the, and the fashions of Christianity, but they really want nothing to do with the substance of Christianity. So there's cultural Christians inundating our churches across our land. These are people who have no mark of Christianity on their lives other than the fact that they attend church on a regular basis. They attend worship. Possibly they're in a small group. They're going through the religious motions, but in their life there's no obedience. There's no desire for deeper obedience in their life. There's no mark of Christian Christianity, no mark of Christ upon their life. There's no seriousness about God in their walk with Jesus. They're just going through the motions. They're just going through these religious hoops that they've always done. Maybe they learned that from their parents who learned it from their parents and they're passing it now on to their children and grandchildren, but there's no seriousness about God. All they want, all they're satisfied with is religious activity. And so they come. They come to church, they check off their box, they get their little piece of religion, and they call themselves Christians. And as a pastor, as your pastor this morning, I need to help you understand this morning that if that's your experience in the Christian world, if that's your experience with Christ, you cannot and you should not call yourselves a Christian this morning. Because us being a child of God, us being in Christ, is so much more than sitting in a service on Sunday, sitting in a small group on Sunday, being in some sort of other religious activity. It is a lifestyle because we are in Christ. He has become our life, Paul says to the church at Colossae. And so you should never consider yourselves a Christian. Instead, you ought to consider yourselves lost and in danger of condemnation. You should see yourselves as those headed to a devil's hell because that's where every one of us is headed until we come to Christ. And so my words, I understand, may seem a little strong so early on in the message, but we need to know how dangerous of a game we're playing with our lives when we treat the Christian faith so haphazardly. We need to understand it's a dangerous game when we become satisfied with religion over a relationship. I mean, think about it. Why would anyone ever want to participate in religious activities that point to Christ but never experience what Christ wants to give us? It would be like us going to our favorite restaurant, sitting down, looking at the menu, enjoying the ambiance of the atmosphere of the room, and getting up and never eating what they have to offer. Think about that. How ludicrous is it to set in a religious circle all the while, never experiencing what God would have you to have through the church, through the people of God, through the gospel that he's provided. People do it. I believe because it's easy. 
You see, it's easy for us to come to church, go through the religious motions, check the boxes off, get our little piece of religion, and go home because it costs us nothing. We think we've participated because we were there. We think that we helped out because we were there. I mean, it would be like us going to a football game, watching the game, thinking we actually had something to do with it, but we never stepped foot upon the field. Until you're on the field, in the game, you really have nothing to be excited about, nothing to enjoy. All you were was a spectator, not a teammate. So this is where so many people in America are today. They're satisfied with their religious activity, and they wrongly think God is satisfied too. We think that somehow we can conjure God into being satisfied because we did certain things. When he looks through our lives, he sees the wickedness of our heart, and he knows everything about us. And yet we think that we have cornered him in some sort of box, and we've checkmated him when it comes to our salvation. Because we've jumped through hoops, he's satisfied, but he sees it all. So this miscalculation, though it's prominent today in our American Christianity, is nothing new. We see it all throughout the the book of Judges. We see it specifically here in these two chapters we're going to be looking at. You see, Israel made the same mistake that we make today. When we began the book of Judges, we learned that the people of God followed the Lord, following Joshua and his contemporaries. All the, all the days that Joshua lived and led Israel to conquest the land, and also his contemporaries who were there with him and might have just followed him and their leadership, they followed God. The Bible tells us that they quickly left God after their deaths. They walked away from the Lord. Look at the screen. In Judges chapter 2.10, we looked at this last February. The Bible says some very harsh words here, very depressing words here about the people of God and their spiritual condition. In verse 10, it says, And all that generation also, the generation that is who came after Joshua, all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, I, uh, I pray that you would take this time and take your word and speak clearly to the deep recesses of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, do what Hebrews 4.12 does, that you would take your word and divide to the joint and marrow. Lord, you would split us wide open and reveal anything and everything that is, that is false, anything and everything that is sinful and wicked. And Lord Jesus, that we would come broken before you today, lay our lives before you. And those of us who are in Christ, who are walking at a guilty distance, who have become accustomed and satisfied with religious activity, that Lord, we would experience revival today. And those who are simply religious, but apart from a relationship with you, that they would experience spiritual awakening even today. And so, Lord, would you bless your word, bless this preacher, help me to convey what you've said and only what you've said this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible here tells us in Judges 2 that this new generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Now, sometimes we maybe read this verse and think that... Um, that the people of God completely abandoned everything and every aspect of God, every aspect of the law, every aspect of what Moses had taught them. So we might think that they abandoned Yahweh worship, but that is not what happened. 
You see, I've been sharing with you over and over as we've walked through Judges that there is this syncretizing that's taking place, synchronization that's taking place here between Israel and their worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the Canaanite worship of Baal that they are inundated with by the nations they're going in and dispersing. And so rather than driving them out completely, rather than eradicating every aspect of their uh, pluralistic understanding of who God is, they embrace them as they also embrace the worship of Yahweh. So they continued using the forms of worship that Moses had instituted in their lives as they also learned and grabbed from the nations around them. See, the problem is their worship had form, but it had no substance. Israel was going through the religious motion set forth by Moses, but there was no substance in their worship. So they quickly syncretized everything with the forms and substance of the neighboring nations. The general summation of Israel's growing apostasy is increasingly described as we walk chapter by chapter through the book of Judges. We see them walking further and further away from God. See, in the early chapters, uh, the Bible tells us chapters 1 and 2 are really a a brief synopsis of what's going to happen during these 200 years. And then in chapter 3, we see from Othniel, Ehud, and those who followed all the way down to Samson, a gradual drift away from God. So that we come to chapters 17 through 21, and you don't even have a judge anymore. You don't have a people who are seeking after God anymore. We don't even find that in the, in the chapters that deal with Samson. There's no, uh, there's no indication that the people of God longed for the Lord. There's no indication that people wanted to be brought out of their apostasy. They were simply satisfied to live where they were, to live in their sin. So the book of Judges, in many ways, is a picture of the depravity that is so prominent in our hearts and in our lives. Here we have the people of God who have become numb to the promptings and numb to the voice of God so that they don't even hear that God is still speaking and calling them back to himself. Here in these final chapters, we find some very troubling stories. In fact, I don't know about you, but I've never even heard another preacher that I know of preach from chapters 17 through 21. So to me, I'm, I, in my life, in my experience, I'm on new territory this week. I, I've never listened to a sermon, been in the presence of someone preaching a sermon on these chapters. And in so many ways, most scholars would refer to these as the appendices of the book of Judges. They're weird and strange and wicked stories here in these chapters. And many times we look at them and think, why are these even in the Bible? Why do these Uh, need to be something that I should read and learn from. And so I've asked myself that question. I've asked the Lord that question. God, why have you included these in the canon of Scripture? Why are these a part of the book of Judges when there is no judge? Well, the reality is there's always a judge, and he's the supreme judge. And his name is Jesus. And so the lives of the people pointed out here in these chapters are going to stand before the ultimate judge one day. But I believe the, the Lord has given us another reason why he included these chapters, and that is because he preserved these stories to remind us just how depraved human nature is. Just uh, for us to understand how depraved the human heart is, the, the, the link that we will go to in our wickedness. I mean, in these two chapters, we're going to see gross idolatry. 
we're going to see those who would call upon the name of the Lord one minute, stand and worship a plurality of gods the next minute. Instead, in fact, they're putting the two together. They're putting Yahweh right next to all these household gods and carved images and everything else they can worship under the sun. And so we see this because this is the reality of human life. We are completely depraved. And we also are given it to show us how dangerous our Christless religious activity is to us personally as well as to, us the, to, to those who are around us. So in these two chapters, let me just, we're not going to read them. We're going to read some of the verses in just a minute. But in these two chapters, let me give you a, a, a quick uh, summary of what's taking place. Chapter 17 opens with an Ephraimite by the name of Micah. And the Bible tells us this, this Micah here uh, is a little bit of a predator. And he, no, he's, maybe he's uh, got some outstanding debts that he's got to pay. We don't know what the reason, but he goes to his mom's little store of silver and steals her treasure. The Bible tells us that he takes 1,100 pieces of silver and, and keeps it for himself. Well, his mom's not too happy about that. And she calls down a curse upon whoever stole it. Now, in that day and age, they believed that when you called down a curse on someone who did something like that, it was something that would stick to them and it would follow them the rest of their life. And so this young Ephraimite boy by the name of Mike, he's probably not a boy, he's probably a young man at this point, he gets scared at the fact that his mom's called a curse down upon him. And so he comes crawling back to his mom and says, Mom, you know the 1,100 pieces of silver that came up missing? I did it. I took it. I, I, I tend to believe that the mom had some motherly intuition. How many of you never could understand how your mom, when you were a child, knew what you did wrong? You get, did you all have a mom like that? My mom knew that. My wife knows when our daughters do something wrong. I'm dad. I'm just probably out there in the left field. Hey, what's, what's going on? No, there's some motherly intuition that... It, that gives moms the ability to read the faces and to know what's going on in the lives of their children. And so I tend to believe that she knew what had happened here. And so he brings the money back. Rather than scolding the, the young lad, what does she do? The Bible tells us she blesses him. And she promises to give the money to the Lord, to dedicate to the Lord, so that a carved image and a metal image could be made for him to worship. That's an interesting point in this story. So Micah takes these two idols, he puts them up in his shrine that he'd already had, puts them alongside the household gods, the ephod, and he has his own son as a priest. And so here you've got a family, a mom and a son, and generations being uh, 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 put in place here who are complete and utter idolaters, worshiping Yahweh right alongside the Canaanite gods and everything else out there there was. One day... A young, young man by the name of Jonathan from Bethlehem showed up on his doorstep. This man was a Levite. He was on the look for a new home. He wanted a new job. And so Micah, seeing that he is a Levite here, knowing he has his own son as his priest, saw this as God's blessing upon his life. God has blessed me now to bring me a Levite. See, they've not left all of the forms of worship from Judaism. They've not left all the forms of worship from what Moses had instructed. So this man understood, if I've got a Levite, I'm putting myself on better ground, more solid ground than if I've got my own son to be my priest. He makes a deal with him and hires him as his own personal family priest. Jonathan took the job. He served in the family shrine according to chapter 17, verse 12. The chapter ends with Micah being convinced that the Lord would bless him because he had a Levite priest. Chapter 18 begins, we learn that the tribe of Dan, who lived among the Judites, did not yet possess their own land. 
And so they were tired of the Philistine oppression. They got tired of not having their own land. They're the last tribe to go and conquest some land. And so they sent five spies up north to spy out some land. While they're up there in this land, they learn that Micah's estate is in this land that they're looking for. And so they come across Micah's land. They meet Jonathan. They learn that he has these household gods and all of these things. They go back. They tell the, the Danites that this land is exactly what God has planned for us and given us. We can take it. It's, it's, it's ours. Let's go do it. So they go up there 600 strong with their families and their children and all of this. And then in the land, these five spies say, did you know that in this land... There's a man by the name of Micah. He has his own priest named Jonathan. He's got household gods. He's got an ephod. He's got these carved images. He's got everything that we need for us to be able to defeat these Canaanites. So they go. They take Jonathan. They steal the household gods. And the chapter ends with us being told that in this new conquered land, they set up the carved image at a town called Laish, which later is named Dan, and Jonathan and the sons that came after him became the priests to the Danites all the way until the Assyrians captured and displaced the Danites in 722 B.C. So you've got four to 500 years of history here with these men and these metal images and these idols in place in a Jewish tribe. Does it sound like your family? Hopefully not to the extent, but many ways, our families are messed up because our religion gets in the way of our relationship. You know, in this story, I think it reveals just how destructive the slightest deviation from the truth will play out down the line. See, it's like a water running down a hill that carries away the fertile soil. And I want to share with you this morning five eroding religious misconceptions that we find in these chapters and that we find in our own homes. Number one, my religious beliefs and practices don't really influence my children. Sometimes we can think that our religious beliefs and our religious practices don't really influence my children. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. <clears throat> there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, and she gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and the household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Why did he need the silver? Could have been that he wanted to make his own carved images. Could have been that he was already gross in idolatry. But nonetheless, he steals the money. His mom dedicates a portion, a fifth of what she had actually dedicated to the Lord. And out comes this gross idolatry in this family. What makes us think that our children won't grow up to be just like us. Now, I, I bet this morning as we read through these five verses that all of us were thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that woman. 
I'm glad that I'm not leading my children astray like that woman is. I would never give money. I would never perpetuate the idol worship for my children. I would never do anything that would lead my children to worship any other God other than the God of the Bible. But in so many ways, our beliefs and practices, whatever they may be, influence our children. So what today makes us think that our children will not grow up to be just like us? You've heard the old saying, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. So our children take on our personas. I I talked about last week how uh, we all have the scent probably of our parents. We take your shirt off at night, you'll smell like your mom or you'll smell like your dad. It's funny, I thought I was the only one that ever had that. But I had a lady this week come up to me like, you know what happened to me the other week? I was taking my shirt off and I smelled my mom. Happens all the time. But it's not just in our scent. It's in how we live. It's how we think. It's in the words that we say. What makes us think that our children won't grow up to be just like us? You see, much of what we believe, much of what we do, and how we live our lives as adults, we learned as a child from our parents. And that ought to be a sobering thought for every one of us who is a parent. Micah here learned to be an idolater, not because one day he rolled out of bed and he thought, I'm going to worship another God other than the God of Israel. No, he learned it from mom, who probably learned it also from dad. Micah learned to be an idolater from his parents. He built a shrine in his home because she probably had a shrine in her home. What he's doing is here, he's syncretizing his Jewish faith with the beliefs of the other religions because mama had syncretized her faith with other beliefs from the people around her. My beliefs and my practices as a parent today, think about this, will deeply influence my children tomorrow. And their faith and their practices will deeply influence their children the next day. Why is it that today in the typical evangelical church, that 80% or more of our seniors who graduate from high school and go off to college will never step back in the church again? Some will. A very small percentage will come back into the church. Why do so many step away from the church once they leave high school and out from the umbrella of mom and dad? What is it that leads that? Leads to that? I want to just submit to you this morning that it's because they didn't learn at home, generally speaking, most of the time speaking, they didn't see at home the gospel being driven deep into their own hearts by mom and dad, and they didn't see it modeled faithfully by mom and dad at home. So to them, it's nothing more than religion, and so religion can be forsaken. Relationship can't be walked away from, but you can leave the faith if it's a religion. You can't leave the faith when it's a personate personal, passionate relationship. Do you understand the difference? So I believe the reason we're seeing so many of our teenagers walk away from the church when they go to college is because they're not properly seeing it at home and modeled by mom and dad on a consistent basis. So as a parent, we need to be careful to drive the gospel deep into the hearts of our kids. And think about this. It's never too late to talk to our children. I'm speaking to a lot of senior adults this morning. Your kids are grown up, they're gone, and they have kids of their own. Perhaps you even have great-grandchildren. And so you may be thinking, my time is past. I can't influence my kids anymore. They're 55 years old. 
But it's never too late to influence your children. It's never too late to influence the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Step up today and be an influencer. Go before those you've messed up. Maybe you've not lived the life you should have. Maybe you didn't drive the gospel deep into their hearts. Be real with them and confess that to them. Say, I did you a disservice. But today I understand that the gospel is the greatest need in your life. Come to Jesus Christ. Why do we think that our children won't grow up to be just as apathetic as we are? See, what we believe will be what we practice, and that will greatly influence our children's beliefs, and it will deeply influence our children's lifestyle. There's a second misconception that we have when it comes to religion that erodes our faith. And that is, God is more concerned about my sincerity than my obedience. Look at verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see this statement made at least two times in the book of Judges. It's a clear indication of the mentality, the mindset of the people of God during these judging periods, the seasons of their life. And so here we see an indication of the heart and the mindset of the people of God. They wanted to do what was right. The problem was they were doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in the eyes of God. There's a monumental difference. One is on one side of the canyon with a great gulf in between, and the other is on the other side, and the two never come together. We should never be the people of God who do what's right in our own eyes. We should always be the people of God who seek to do what's right in God's eyes, which is always in accordance with His Word. Amen? i got to teach you all how to say amen. Fred's no longer with us. I need somebody to step up and take his place. Mike and the people of Israel... In their abandonment of God, had not abandoned the forms associated with worshiping God. See, they were going through these religious motions that Moses gave them in the law. They were doing the things the right way, or, or I should say it this way, doing the right things was still important to them. They wanted to make sure they dotted the I and crossed off the T. They wanted to make sure they're going through the right religious motions, but they didn't have the heart behind it. They They wanted the form, but they didn't care so much about the substance. The problem lay in the fact that they added also to their worship what they learned from the Canaanites. So they thought God would accept them because, after all, they were sincere. I've heard this argument when you're sharing the gospel with someone. They'll they'll come back to you and say, "Yeah, yeah, God's gracious, God's nice, God's kind, he loves all people. He's going to accept me based upon my sincerity, even if I'm sincerely following something that's contradictory to the Bible. And in our own Christian faith, we sometimes think that God will bless us based upon sincerity rather than based upon obedience. Did you know this morning that you can be sincere in your worship yet be sincerely wrong? Sure. You can attend church every Sunday. You can participate in a small group. You can read your Bible. You can sing songs of praise, lifting hands before the Father. You can even tell others about Jesus and miss the whole point of the gospel. I did that for 18 years of my life. When I came to faith in Jesus, I was a small group leader. I led a 7th grade Sunday school class. I was a a very devoted, uh, I thought, follower of God at the time. I had two quiet times a day. I was leading people to Jesus. I was uh, a leader in my student ministry before graduating. I I looked good on the outside, had all the forms, but there was no substance on the inside. God doesn't care about how sincere you are if you're disobedient. 
The demons of hell, think about this, the demons of hell are sincere in their rebellion against God. Where do you think their eternity is going to be? So this leads us to a third misconception, a very close third misconception. That is, God is pleased through my religious activity. Chapter 17 ends there in verse 13 with this idea. Micah says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. What is he saying? God's going to bless me because I've got all my ducks in order. God's going to bless me because I'm going through the right motions. God's going to bless me because I have a Levite priest in my home. How many times do we think, maybe not consciously or definitely not saying it, but we think we're all right right with God because we're a part of a strong, Bible-believing, evangelical Southern Baptist church. Or we think that we're right with God because we grew up in this type of home. We have this sort of conservative belief system. All the while, we're nothing more than an Ephraimite who thinks he's right because he has a Levite priest in his home. All the while, he's bowing down and worshiping everything else there is out there in the world. God is not pleased through my religious activity. So we should never be fooled into thinking that somehow, some way, we can please him by participating in religious activities. Samuel said it this way in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. I can't say it any better than Samuel said it. He's basically saying this. You can cut out all the religious activities in your life, if you're not obedient to God, they matter nothing before the Lord. So what makes us think today that we can charm God by jumping through some sort of religious hoop? I mean, what a small God he would be if he can be conjured up like we would conjure up a snake in a basket by our little music as we jump through religious hoops. That is not the God we serve. Our God is the God who existed by himself when there was nothing else and was completely okay with that. Self-sufficient, self-existent. He created us for his own glory, for his own pleasure. We are simply the blessings of God back unto himself. So when things seem to be falling apart in your own lives, you know what happens? This is what we tend to think. I've got to get back to church. You know, if you're, if you're a good Southern Baptist, you're a strong evangelical with a church upbringing, and things begin to go awry in your life, you begin to realize, man, this may be the judgment of God. I've got to get back to church so that I can get out of this situation. It could be that God is using the difficulties that you're going through to bring you back to himself, but he's not bringing you back simply to go to church. Now, going to church is important, but the point God is trying to drive home is not that you would just be in church. God wants you to be the church. He wants you to be of the church. In other words, he wants you to be a child of God, a part of the body of Christ. He wants you to be in community and fellowship with his body. It's not just simply that you would become more religious, and then because of your religious activities, you've cornered him and checkmated him so that his blessings rain down on you. Does that make sense? But this is how we think. We think that our religion leads to God's blessing. No, God's word says your obedience will lead to God's blessings. If you don't believe that, read the entire book of Deuteronomy. Just before the people of God are going to enter the promised land, he reiterates the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means second giving of the law. And so there God warns over and over again from chapters 4 to about chapters 9, we see God warning through Moses over and over again that if you will obey my word, the blessings will come, but if you disobey, I will curse you. So why would we ever think that religion would bring the blessings and the pleasure of God? 
Instead, he desires for you to be obedient. He desires for you to obey the gospel. And when we obey the gospel, it means that we approach God on his terms. It means we acknowledge our sinfulness. It means we acknowledge his holiness. We acknowledge the fact that his sufficiency is there to cover our sin. We bring nothing to the table, but we experience everything he has to offer. We approach him by faith through the blood of the cross. And Jesus never accepts us because of we're sincere or, or because we're religious. He simply accepts us because we surrender in obedience to his lordship. There's a fourth misconception. It's, it's this. It is okay for me to worship Jesus alongside other gods. You say, well, I never worship Jesus alongside other gods. How, how dare I? I don't have an idol in my house. I'm not like Micah here in chapter 17, 5, who not only has these two images that his mama created, but now he's also got a, a plethora of household gods. He's got an ephah, so he's impersonating the uh, chief priest, high priest in Israel, and he's got his own son as a priest. I would never do that in my own home. Or do we? Or do we worship other things alongside of Jesus? You see, over and over again, we read in the Bible that God is a jealous God. We read that God will not tolerate the spiritual adultery of his people. Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6, those chapters that I just mentioned. We see in chapter 32 again there, Joshua 24, Zechariah 8, 2. We could go on and on and on all throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. God will not tolerate to be set alongside any other inferior little G God. Now, most of us would not worship those little inferior G-gods as we see them as an idol carved out of stone or wood or fashioned out of some sort of metal. See, our idolatry is a whole lot more subtle than that. We're not as brash as to worship something we would set on our mantle above the fireplace. We place the forms of our worship alongside Jesus. This is what I've seen over my years as an American Christian, is that our little G gods, oftentimes are our money and our pleasure and even family, but in the church, we've got these little G gods that come in the form of worship forms. I got to come get my little piece of religion. I got to come be a part of church. I got to do this, do that. I think that God accepts me because I'm participating in all of that. And so we put those things right up alongside Jesus and we bow down to them and we surrender our lives to them. It's when we become so focused on the form that we neglect the substance. That's when we know there's something rivaling, rivaling the supremacy of God in our life. So how do you know when your faith has become more focused on form rather than the substance? I believe in many ways we can see this, that when this worship service or something in the church that has been so... Uh, set in place for so long, when that gets rocked a little bit and we get a little crossways with it, I think that helps us understand there's something not right in us personally. Because if our worship is contingent upon an order of worship, then there's something not right within us spiritually. Now, I think a lot of this in our church has died down. At least I don't hear it. Maybe you're just a little bit quieter about it. I'm not sure. But I've experienced this my entire life in church. That when things get a little rocky because we are set to do things in a religious way, then our faith gets a little shocked. I think it reveals to us our faith is not as strong as we thought it was to begin with. 
And so we need to be careful not to ever put anything up alongside Jesus. Not our families. I mean, your children, as, as wonderful as they are, they're not more than important than Jesus. Paul tells us in, in, in Colossians that he is to be preeminent. Jesus is to be preeminent in our life. That he is to have the first place in all things, even our religious experiences. Man, let's not live, and this is the thing that I think maybe the younger generation struggles with, is that we're living for the feeling in our worship service. I want that tingling feeling. I remember this as a child. I remember coming, sitting in church, and the way my home church did it is the choir would come in, and they would crisscross. I went to a big church. They would crisscross in the balcony for the choir loft, and, and they, it was just a neat thing. They would always play the same music, and it was like this walkout-type music in, in a church setting almost. It would give me the chill bumps. And so the Sundays that I didn't feel the chill bumps, I thought I was missing out on something religiously. I thought that the Holy Spirit didn't show up because I didn't get my goosebumps. So today, I think we, we run the risk of getting so enamored in the worship experience that we miss God. And it can happen in a new song. It can happen in the old traditional hymn. I, one of the pastors that I revere, I mean, he's been a huge uh, blessing to me through his writings and his preachings over the year. Yesterday, I saw on Twitter, was lamenting the fact that he doesn't hear amazing grace in church. I'm just sitting here thinking, you must not be going to church as I'm going to. But he was lamenting. He's like, I always said, he said it in some derogatory way. And I was just taken back by that. Are we living for a warm, fuzzy feeling? Or are we living for Jesus? There's a fifth misconception. Man, I got, Nick gave me a whole lot longer to preach, and I've already used it all the time. The last misconception I got for you this morning is this My actions today have no impact on future generations. This is where it's going to drive it home for us. I think we can be lulled into believing that what I do today has no impact on others tomorrow. But that's not the case. Look at 18, verses 30 and 31. The Bible says, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, this is the priest who was hired by Micah, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. What do we learn here from this two ending verse, these two ending verses? I believe we learn this. What we do today always impacts tomorrow. It doesn't matter what realm of life you were talking about. What you do today will impact your tomorrow, right? You go to the doctor's office, you get a checkup. What does the doctor always say? Eat healthy, need exercise. Why? Because you want to live longer. Or do you? I don't know. Some of you may not want to live longer. Maybe that's why you don't follow the doctor's uh, orders when you go there. you just like, forget that. I'm going to live for, this, for today. I'm going to enjoy today. Let tomorrow be what it is. But the truth is, what we do today always impacts tomorrow. So what we believe to be true today will also impact what we do and how we live out that truth tomorrow. Horatius Bonar said this, Let us be true to truth. Loving it not because it is pleasant or picturesque or ancient, but because it is true and divine. Do you know the deception of the enemy is very, very subtle. The deception of the enemy that we have is, is so subtle that if we're not careful, we'll be lured into deception. I mean, think about it. We're rarely tempted to abandon the word of God and the gospel. The enemy never comes to us and just overtly in our face says, you need to forsake that. It is a bunch of hooey. That's not what he does at all. 
The enemy comes in Genesis 3, and he's talking to Eve, and I believe Adam as well. He doesn't come and completely disregard God. He doesn't come and say, you know that guy that's been walking around in the garden with you, talking with you, telling you what you should do? That's not even God. He's an impersonator. He doesn't say that at all, does he? He could have. What does he say? What about that tree over there? Man, it looks good. Have you tried it? No, they told us not to eat from that tree. Why did he tell you not to eat from that tree? It's because if we eat from that tree, we'll die. Did God really say that you would die? I think you misunderstood what he said. I don't think you quite understood. Maybe the translation. He was speaking this different language, and it was translated wrong for you. That's not exactly what he said. And then he takes it a step further. If you eat from this tree, the reason he might have said what you think he said is because you're going to be like him. In other words, God's not as good as you think he is, and he's holding out on you. So he didn't deny God completely. He took what God said, and he twisted it. And that's what happens to us. The deception is very, very subtle. So the scheme here is to carve away little by little our commitment to the truth, to the word of God. We see this deception all the time in our lives. Israel experienced it as well. They didn't completely abandon God at the beginning, but little by little, we see as we walk from Judges 1 all the way to Judges 21, they abandoned the Lord. They deviated from the truth, and it eroded away their faith and their fidelity to God. Why were they chasing after other gods? It's because they lost their faith, thus they're no longer being committed to the Lord, practicing fidelity. So as we come to Micah's mom, we find a woman who's doing nothing more, or she's nothing more than the product of her own upbringing. She became an idolater because she learned it from those who came before her. She in turn provided the blueprint of an idolater for her son to follow, which inevitably led to an entire tribe further, going further and further into idolatry. The proverb says in 22.6, train up a child on the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is our job as parents, to point the direction, to lead by example, and to lead in truth so that our kids have a blueprint, a model upon which to follow. Like father, like son. I mean, think about children like sponges. They soak up everything they see. They soak up everything they hear. They soak up everything and they experience. So what are you putting out there for your children, your grandchildren? Dad, what are you teaching your children by the way you speak, by what you watch and what you do? What are you teaching them by the way you pursue Jesus? Mom, same thing. What are you teaching your children by the way you teach, what you do and what you watch? What are you teaching your children by the way you pursue Jesus? I mean, think about it. Have, you, have we allowed the gospel to be driven down deep into our own hearts? Thus, now we have the platform upon which to drive the gospel deep into the hearts of our own children, whether they're four or 40. Are you driving the gospel down into the lives of your children? This morning, some of you, your testimony, if you were to be honest, is this. I failed miserably. My kids are not in church. My kids care nothing about church. My kids, though they may have made a profession of faith and been baptized years ago as a child, their life has no indication of conversion, no indication of transformation. There's no life of Jesus in them. And so as a parent, I look at myself and I say, I failed. But it's not too late. See, there's grace. We talked about Samson last week, right? Samson's at the end of his life. His entire life has been a, a monumental disaster, and yet he stands there at the very end of his life, and the Bible tells us that his hair began to grow again. The grace of God was reached out and poured upon Samson. You might have failed miserably in rearing your children to love and fear the Lord, but it's not too late. It's not too late. What you do today will greatly impact their 
tomorrow. So what do we do? You pray for your kids and you preach the gospel to them. As we come to these final chapters in Judges, the people of God were nothing more than a shell of what they were supposed to be. They're like Superman who couldn't fly. The faith and the vibrancy of Joshua, the faith and vibrancy of Caleb and others was long gone. And everyone was doing what was right in his or her own eyes. The problem with that is it's easy to deviate from the true mark. You know, it's so easy to deviate from the true mark. This week I'm getting ready for a trip that I'm going on in just a couple of weeks. I know you're going to laugh at this. I'm going bow hunting with good friend of mine in Kentucky, uh, early November. So I had to get my bow ready. You know, my peep sight was messed up. I needed a new peep sight. I've been wanting a kisser button. Some of you had no idea what all this is. I'm going to drive the point home I'm trying to make. It's easy to deviate from truth, right? One little step. One little deviation today. Microscopic deviation from truth. What happens on down the line? It's monumental. See, when you're sighting in a bow, and that's what I've been doing this weekend between naps with Hadley, you got to go out there, and as you shoot a bow, everything's an anchor point. So as I pull the bow back, this little green thing that you might, might or might not be able to see is called a kisser button. I put it right here in the corner of my mouth. It's a reference point. It's an anchor point. And then I look at the peep sight, and I want to take the peep sight, look through it as it's drawn back, and I'm going to line it up with one of these pins here that I can see that are sighted in for different distances. And then, so I want to do that. I want to keep all of that there. And then I want to do everything the exact same. I want the string to come on the tip of my nose. I want the kisser button to be right here in the corner of my mouth. I want to look the same way and have the bow level as I look through the side and line up the peep sight with the pin that's down here. And I'm going to put that on the target down the way. I'm doing all of these things right in the same way every single time. Why? It's to ensure that I hit the target. Because if I don't do all of those things, one little deviation here at the bow, 30 yards down the, down the way, I may be off by 6 to 12 inches. Does that make sense? So the way I live my life today and what I believe to be true today, the way I practice my faith today, the way I love my children and drive the gospel deep into my children's hearts today will play a huge, huge part in their faith, their practice from generations to come. And so what we see in the Bible here with these Jews during the days of the judges is that they deviated from truth. And they thought it was insignificant at the moment. But 200 years later, they are in full-blown idolatry. Today, you may be saying, my family is not where I wish it was. And you could go back and you could think of the moment you began to deviate from truth. Maybe as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, you began to compromise. What do you need to do this morning? The Bible tells us that grace is sufficient. The Bible says if we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins. So this morning, if you're in that situation, you know you've not driven the gospel deep into your home. You've not modeled the gospel properly before your children. You need to bring your, your situation before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I have messed it up. In many ways, I was like Micah's mom. I've led my family astray. I've led my own heart astray. But Lord Jesus, you're gracious and you're forgiving. And I fall on the mercy of my God. I bring my sins on light, lay them at the foot of the cross, and I ask that you forgive them and cleanse them and make me new again. Help me to be what I need to be for my family. Perhaps this morning, you would say, you know what, I've never been in relationship with Christ. I've just simply been religious 
Pastor, in a lot of ways, your, my life looked like yours. I was going through some serious religious motions and everything. Everyone thought I was okay, but the truth is I'm far from God. I'm a broken mess, and if I was to die today, I would bust hell wide open. What do you do? It's the same thing. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all sin, to cleanse you from all iniquity. So we come before Jesus, we lay our situation down, we ask for his mercy and for his grace, and he will extend it to us. And then we pick up ourselves in the truth and the power of God, and we press on in Christ. Not in religion, not in Christianity, not in church membership, not in baptism, not in any sort of religious aspect. We press on in the life of Christ that is being pressed out through us. So this morning, wherever you're at, I pray that you would come to Jesus this morning and experience the blessings he has for you. Father, I, I want you so badly to work in the lives of all of us today. Lord, I want your d- deep work in my own heart. God, I want that. I know you want that. Lord, I, 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 what I don't know is if we want that. Ball's in our court in many ways. God, I, I don't want to be satisfied with religious activity any longer. I don't want to be lulled to sleep by going through motions and satisfied with the form but having no substance, no power, no life. God, what a miserable experience that is for everyone involved. Truth is, Lord, if we read the early chapters of Revelation, you're, you're dissatisfied with that. You're nauseated with that sort of lukewarm faith. The truth is it's no faith at all. You would rather us spit in your face and completely reject you than to give you nominal adherence. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would learn from this messed up family and this messed up people today. God, as messed up as we are, help us to understand and remember that the grace of the cross is always extended toward us. The blood of Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin. Forgiveness is awaiting. All we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord, and your word says we will be saved. And as a child of God who's already experienced your salvation, all we have to do is call upon you and confess our sin, and we, have, we will be forgiven, and the grace of God will be extended to us. So, Lord, this morning I pray that we would be serious about our personal faith and about the future of our homes. May we not be like Micah, who think because we did something or had something that we're okay in your eyes. May we only rest in the fact that our life has been hidden in Christ. That's the only thing that matters. So Lord, may your blessings rest upon us. May your spirit draw us to yourself. Give us boldness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Won't we stand around the room?